Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi and welcome to Archive Sleuth, the podcast in which I, Georgina Asfau, ferret around in the archives to unearth stories of the extraordinary in ordinary past lives. This is episode two of the story of mutiny and murder aboard the Dove Brigantine. If you haven't already done so, I recommend you pause here and go back and listen to episode one first. By the end of the last episode, we left the Dove Brigantine at Livorno on the Tuscany coast in the late summer of 1736. The ship's captain, Benjamin Hawes, was enjoying the pleasures of the Tuscan port town while the Dove lay at anchor for six weeks, awaiting her cargo of tobacco and sugar. Meanwhile, under the leadership of the captain's second-in-command, mate Nicholas Williams, the Dove's crew were busy plotting how to overthrow their captain and seize the ship and her profitable cargo for themselves. In late August, six men had signed articles of mutiny, binding each other to an agreement to take the ship and turn pirate. These articles were burnt when one of the mutineers, Andrew Downing, got cold feet. Downing's change of heart did not deter the others. Some days after the first articles were burnt, around the 1st of September, 1736, three of the original conspirators, ringleader Williams, along with deckhand Lawrence Sennett and ship's passenger William O'Mara, once again formally committed themselves to the capital offence of mutiny by signing new articles. The other two conspirators, O'Brien and Butler, had, in the intervening days, fallen foul of the Livorno port authorities and had been placed inside the Lazaretto, Livorno's quarantine station for marine travellers to prevent the spread of deadly diseases. To replace O'Brien and Butler, Williams now brought in another crew member, Edward Johnson, as the fourth conspirator. Johnson would later play the critical role in the mutiny, so it is somewhat surprising to see him drawn into the plot so late in the day. It may have been because his shipmates were wary of him. In the early 18th century, sailors had an unsavoury reputation. 
Living somewhat apart from the rest of society, they were looked at askance by the landed population, with figures from writer Daniel Defoe to the Methodist John Wesley describing sailors as highly prone to violence, drunkenness and swearing. It was altogether a good thing when they were safely packed away to sea. Defoe and Wesley would have found all their prejudices confirmed in the person of Edward Johnson. He was a loose cannon, a hothead, with a simmering, violent rage that could strike fear into most men. He was not the most reliable of people for Williams to join forces with. But, having lost one conspirator to cold feet and two more to quarantine, the pool of budding pirates was getting small. Johnson would have to do. O'Mara once again wrote up the articles, under Williams's dictation, and once again Williams signed first, again giving himself the rank of captain once the ship was theirs. O'Mara, no doubt to everyone's relief, resigned his medical pretensions and signed the articles as the supercargo, the person in charge of the tobacco and sugar. Johnson, the final conspirator, signed last, taking the rank of boatswain, the officer responsible for the maintenance of the ship, in particular the masts, rigging and sails. The articles committed the men to seizing the dove for themselves, but they were silent on two key points of their plot, where to sail to once the ship was theirs, and, crucially, what to do with Captain Hawes. As regards sailing plans, some suggested Salih, a port on the coast of present-day Morocco. Salih was an operational base of the notorious and much-feared Barbary pirates, who had been attacking ships and coastal settlements throughout the Mediterranean and up the western Atlantic seaboard for hundreds of years by this time. In proposing to sail to Salih, the Dove's crew were throwing themselves wholeheartedly into their new, pirating life. As for the captain, the articles did not stipulate whether he was to live or die. The decision on what to do with Hawes was, theoretically, to be left to Williams as the new pirate captain, and Williams, initially, was in favour of letting Hawes live. He proposed to force Hawes off the ship and to leave him marooned, Robinson Crusoe-style, with a few meagre provisions on the desolate islands of Galietto, some thirty or forty leagues off the northern coast of Africa. A sunny spot, but not a very hospitable one. So, by the agreed terms of mutiny, Captain Hawes was not destined to die. His fate, however, seems to have been sealed in the twenty-four hours leading up to the mutiny, as the crew became ever more resolved to turn pirate, and in the process remove, permanently, the person who would be the obstacle to their plans, and the key witness against them allowing him the mercy of a Robinson Crusoe existence, would not do. By the 6th of September, the Dove's long wait for her cargo was over, as she was finally loaded with her consignment of tobacco and sugar. Just as soon as a favourable wind came off the land, she would be ready to sail. Benjamin Hawes chose to spend one last night on shore, and headed off to Livorno, placing his ship, its cargo and crew, entirely in the trust of his second-in-command, mate Nicholas Williams. It was a serious misjudgment. While the captain was ashore, three men joined his ship without his knowledge. 
braving the dark, cold waters of the harbour at night, John O'Brien, Pierce Butler, and a man named Nicholas Wolfe broke out of the lazaretto where they had been quarantined and swam to join the dove. They were eagerly welcomed by Williams. There was no time to waste. With the ship fully loaded and ready to sail, the mutineer's time to act was nearly upon them. With his pirate crew now bolstered by three, Williams toyed with seizing the ship that very night and slipping away under cover of darkness. But by now it had already gone 3 a.m. It would be light soon, and the wind was against them. What's more, Williams had allowed the crew to indulge themselves in drink, and they were in no fit state to safely sail the ship. Lacking confidence that they could escape beyond the horizon before daybreak, Williams chose to bide his time for just one more day. Had Williams resolved to throw caution to the wind and steal the dove that night, had his crew perhaps resisted the temptation to get drunk as soon as the captain was away, Benjamin Hawes would have lost his ship but kept his life. Throughout the day of the 7th of September, Hawes remained ashore. Meanwhile, discipline aboard his ship had completely broken down. In the morning, the hungover conspirators entered the captain's cabin and helped themselves to his private stores of dried fish and country wine. They then took down six flintlock pistols which were hanging in the cabin and loaded each with gunpowder and a single ball. The newly arrived Nicholas Wolfe was unimpressed. God's blood, he said, a single ball may fly here and there and do no execution. Firearms in the early 18th century, with their smooth-bore barrels, were notoriously inaccurate, unless fired from point-blank range. So on Wolfe's urging, an additional ball was rammed down each gun barrel, the better to improve the odds if it came to a fight. A violent standoff was, it seemed, inevitably on the cards. And Captain Hawes was not the only intended target for the loaded pistols. His cabin boy, Richard Walker, was also the object of the mutineers' scorn and abuse. They swore they'd be even with him, and said an hundred times damn their bloods, the first opportunity they had, they would get him out of the way, a vile dog as he was, for opposing them. Exactly what Walker had done to oppose the group and earn their hatred is not clear. Perhaps he had been approached by the mutineers, but refused to have any part in their plot. This is possible, but unlikely, as it took Walker not a little time to twig on to what was happening once the mutiny got underway. This would hardly have been the case if he'd previously been invited to turn pirate himself. It is more likely the mutineers simply considered Walker too loyal to the captain to bring in to their conspiracy. Walker was, after all, not merely Hawes's cabin boy, but also his apprentice, and the two men had sailed together for nine years. Perhaps the mutineers feared Walker as the one outlier among the crew, the one person, besides the captain, who might oppose them 
and scupper their plans. As events transpired, they were right to be wary of him, and should have given the matter of what to do about Walker a little more forethought rather than just muttering ominous threats against him. After feasting and arming themselves at the captain's expense, O'Mara read out the most recent set of articles for the benefit of the newcomers. Butler and O'Brien were furious. They had been pushed out of the ranks they had been assigned in the first articles. The two men angrily swore and cursed the others for this betrayal, and things quickly escalated. Senate and Johnson pushed back, demanding a greater share of the profits once the cargo was sold, as while O'Brien and Butler had comfortably sat in the lazaretto, they had done the hard slog of actually loading the cargo into the ship. This was hardly in the spirit of equal shares, which they had all agreed to. Senate and Johnson's avaristic stance ignited an already heated situation. In a flash, the men drew out their long knives. Fueled by the country wine, the six sailors stood holding each other at knife point. The mutiny teetered on the edge of a blade. It was on the verge of collapsing before it had even begun. It was Edward Johnson who averted bloodshed, not through the art of diplomacy, but the sheer power of his aggression. As he stood wielding his knife in the captain's cabin, he threatened to rip up any dog who came near him. Johnson was so persuasively intimidating that O'Brien even expressed a wish to swim back to shore again. Cowed by Johnson's menacing presence, the mutineers all backed down and sheathed their knives, for the time being. But Johnson had revealed his terrible rage and his uncompromising preparedness to attack, and in a few short hours he would reveal it again. We'll get back to the story of Mutiny on the Dove shortly. Now, a quick interval for me to say thank you very much for listening to this episode. Your support is much appreciated. To find out more about this podcast and subscribe for future episodes, you can go to shows.acast.com forward slash archive hyphen sleuth. That's shows.acast.com forward slash archive hyphen sleuth or find and follow Archive Sleuth on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Links to all these sites are in the show notes. That's enough from me. Now just a short commercial, then back to the story. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. At some point... Between the hours of nine and ten, on the evening of the 7th of September, Captain Benjamin Hawes was rowed out from the shore and boarded his ship for the final time. Upon boarding, he ordered Nicholas Williams to get the ship ready to sail, but as there was too little wind to set sail yet, he was to hold off heaving the anchor until a wind came off the land. After giving his orders, Hawes descended below decks to his cabin to rest. Richard Walker attended to his captain, and having seen him settle down for sleep, returned up to the quarter-deck, where he lay himself down in the open air, above the captain's cabin, to sleep as well. Elsewhere in the ship, more comfortably accommodated, O'Mara and Wolfe slept in the mate's cabin, which was situated directly adjacent to the captain's, separated only by a thin partition wall. None of the men were to sleep for long. Half an hour after the captain had retired, the night stillness was shattered by a scream. Startled awake, Walker sprang up and went to investigate the noise, which he later described as the groans and shrieks as of a dying man. As he rounded the companionway, he almost collided headlong into Edward Johnson, who was climbing up the companion ladder from below decks. Johnson's right hand was covered in blood. In his left, he held a clasp knife by the handle, which he was on the point of snapping shut. Despite the mutineer's earlier threats, Johnson made no move to attack Walker, but simply let him pass. Walker was nonetheless alarmed. He watched Johnson disappear from view, then called out for the mate, Nicholas Williams. A brigantine is not a large ship. Williams would have heard him. But Williams did not reply. Walker called out again. Again there was no reply. 
Walker called out a third time, and finally Williams appeared. Devoid of any sense of urgency, Williams reassured Walker that the noise he had heard was, in all likelihood, just the captain dreaming. Despite having moments earlier seen Johnson covered in blood and clasping a knife, Walker seems to have been willing to accept this explanation. He did not challenge Williams. He did not go to check on the captain himself. He did not ask whose body the blood dripping from Johnson had come from. Perhaps he daren't believe the worst of his shipmates. Perhaps it was too terrible to imagine that Johnson had attacked someone, that crewmate had turned on crewmate in their small, codependent community. Or perhaps Walker was a little slow-witted. Yet the truth would soon be staring him in the face. After being reassured by Williams, Walker followed him to the windlass. There, three men stood, waiting to lift the anchor. Should we heave up the anchor? Senate asked when Williams arrived. Aye, with all my heart, boys, commanded an emboldened Williams. Turn to, lads. Heave it up with all my heart. Walker was surprised to see the anchor being hauled up, as there was still no wind, and he asked Williams why they were doing it. Williams replied it was captain's orders, which was not a complete lie. The captain was now, after all, Williams himself, though Walker did not know it. Evidently one to trust rather than doubt, Walker concluded that if they were setting sail, it would be proper to get everything in readiness. So he went down into the captain's cabin for his shoes. A gruesome sight awaited him there. Upon opening the cabin door, Walker found the body of his captain of nearly a decade slumped half off, half on his bed. Benjamin Hawes was drenched in blood and appeared to be quite dead. Stunned, Walker ran to find Williams. He told him the captain had been killed and asked him who had done it. Lord have mercy upon me, I cannot tell, replied Williams. Finally outraged to the point of joining the dots, Walker accused Johnson of being the murderer and implored Williams to seize the man and lash him to the ring bolts so that they could carry him ashore to face justice in the morning. Williams walked over to Johnson, who was standing nearby, but any hopes Walker had that Williams would uphold the law and arrest Johnson were quickly and brutally dashed. Instead, after a brief exchange of words, Johnson charged at Walker in a violent rage, swearing, God damn you, you dog, I'll kill you too. A desperate tussle then ensued on deck. Johnson launched himself at Walker, seizing hold of him with one hand while he reached for his knife with the other. Though terrified, Walker had the presence of mind to strike down hard on Johnson's arm and free himself from his grip before he too fell victim to Johnson's bloody blade. Walker turned and ran along the deck, pursued by Johnson's screams of Kill him! Kill him! With the rest of the crew surrounding him on all sides and closing in, Walker had nowhere to hide, nowhere to go, but out. He did not stop to think. In a desperate bid to save his life, Walker leapt over the side of the ship, into the dark, cold water. As he frantically splashed away from the ship, Johnson's screams rang through the night air. Damn the dog, kill him, kill him, don't let him go! And then it was not just words that were being thrown after him. Walker suddenly felt something hard hit his backside. 
a knife had been thrown from the ship with terrifying near accuracy. Walker's trousers were torn, but he wasn't wounded. Through the moonlit darkness, Walker set his sights on the nearest ship, some eight hundred yards away, and swam towards it. But he wasn't in the clear yet. Behind him, one of the dove's boats was being hurriedly lowered down into the water. Johnson and Butler clambered aboard, seized the oars, and set off in frantic pursuit. For the mutineers, it was a simple equation. Kill the witness to their crimes, or be killed for their crimes. Walker, however, proved to be a strong swimmer, and with impressive physical effort, he reached the ship, an Italian settee, before his pursuers could catch up with him. When he got within shouting distance of the ship, Walker cried out, For God's sake, to make them keep off, for they had killed my master, and wanted to kill me. The Italian crew asked Walker who the pursuing boat belonged to, and then hailed them. When Johnson replied of a hello, the Italians fired on the boat, forcing Johnson and Butler into an ignominious retreat. Back on the dove, the other mutineers loosed the sails and turned the ship to sea. But they knew that no matter how fast and far they sailed, with Walker alive, they may never get away with their crimes scot-free. Thank you for listening to this episode of Archive Sleuth. The story of mutiny and murder aboard the Dove Brigantine will conclude with episode 3, released on Thursday the 19th of May. Please do subscribe to Archive Sleuth wherever you get your podcasts, so that you don't miss the final chapter of this grisly tale. In the meantime, if you enjoyed listening, please help this podcast grow by spreading the word to your friends, family and partners in crime. Archive Sleuth was written, narrated and produced by me, Georgina Asfau. This episode was based on the proceedings of The Old Bailey from the 24th of February, 1737, available to read on The Old Bailey Online. The music you heard included Waltz of Treachery by Kevin MacLeod and Sonatina in C Minor by Kevin MacLeod. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.